18th episode of Coronavirus the Truth, a podcast that focuses on the facts surrounding COVID-19. I'm Jeremy Kaur, host of the Popular New Books and Medicine podcast and CEO of Executive Podcast Solutions. With me is Dr. Robert Pearl. For 18 years, Robert led the Permanente Medical Group, the nation's largest physician group. He's a healthcare contributor at Forbes.com, a best-selling author, and a professor at both the Stanford University School of Medicine and Business. Together, we also host the Hit Fixing Healthcare podcast. You can find this episode along with helpful fact-based information on our website, fixinghealthcarepodcast.com. Robbie, each week we begin this show with the most recent and relevant facts concerning the COVID-19 pandemic and its impact on American life. What should our listeners know about the week that was? This virus continues to demonstrate a consistent biology. What's most interesting to me, Jeremy, is how small the crack needs to be for this pathogen to become problematic. The truth is for people around the globe, it's hard to maintain consistent social distancing. Australia has entered a second lockdown with soldiers going door to door, finding people who tested positive and appear to be breaking quarantine. Hong Kong, that for several weeks reported no new infections, is now having to construct temporary hospitals for the surge in patients it is seeing. And Spain, that locked down for three months and had lowered the frequency of the virus, is now seeing 10 times more cases than two months earlier. The experience is the same everywhere. The virus lingers, and the number of cases followed by hospitalizations and deaths grow exponentially. Then steps are taken to social distance, to wear masks, the frequency drops, and then it rises once again. We saw this in Florida at a University of Florida party. 19 people became infected in one night. The United States is now on the good side of the curve. Our nation saw cases spike when social distancing was eased for Memorial Day and then July 4th, cases increased to 70,000 a day, and now we're back below 60, with deaths flat at a little over 1,000 a day and likely to contract even more given the reduced rate of transmission. At the same time, there's a little bit of whack-a-mole. The low number of cases leading to a easing at distancing, leading to a spike, spike followed by intense restrictions, decreased numbers, and so on and so on. This seems to be the pattern in many countries, especially the United States and in various states within our nation. The issues for the United States continue to be aggravated by the difficulties in testing that we're seeing with results delayed up to a week a worthless piece of information at that point relative to transmission. It is so hard, Jeremy, for you to imagine that five months into this pandemic, our nation still can't provide the protective gear and the testing required to begin to take care of this virus and its consequences. Current estimates using serologic testing for the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the CDC, 
indicate that there's a six to 24 times higher incidence of COVID-19 than the current testing concludes. If that is true, it will mean that far more people have been infected than we think. The one bright light in it all is that potentially the lethality is lower than we might have earlier feared. Robbie, we talked on the last show about the next congressional economic package. Where are we? We seem to be no closer now than two weeks ago. You may remember at that time, I thought Congress would do something to help those who are unemployed and relieve some of the economic pressure on cities and states. The need was so immediate, I couldn't imagine that politics would derail any agreement. But it's looking like I was wrong. As best as I can tell, the House wants to increase the weekly unemployment benefits by $600 above what the states offer. The Senate wants to look at $200. The president's in the middle around $400. The House bill that was passed was $3 trillion. The Senate's only $1 trillion. As you know, President Trump this weekend issued four executive orders which will potentially tide us across a short period, hopefully until there's an agreement. But I will tell you right now, it's very unclear whether the executive orders he issued will be held up to be legal. In it, he extended the payments to unemployed people and raised the dollars paid to $400 per week, but he included within it an expectation that the states would contribute 25%, and that remains very uncertain. He said to the end of the year, he would excuse student loan repayments, he would protect renters from eviction, and defer certain payroll taxes for employees earning under $100,000 a year. The implications for families and the economy are major at this point. I don't see that people are making the unemployed and their personal lives the highest priority, although all claim they are. I think what's happening right now is we're stuck in the middle of another ongoing political battle. This virus doesn't care about politics. But every time our nation devolves into them, it's people who are hurt. The presumed Democratic nominee, Vice President Joe Biden, released his health care proposal. Uh, what was in it and how might it impact the post-coronavirus era? Biden's plan has five parts. The first would be a reduction in the age to qualify for Medicare from 65 to 60. And the second would be offering a public option using the Medicare framework to people who get their insurance through the exchanges and others who simply don't like their current coverage. The driver for expanding Medicare is that costs theoretically will be lower. But what's unspoken that the reason the cost would go down is not because the care is more efficient, 
It's simply that the government is the only entity that can unilaterally impose reduced prices, which is what it does. And as a consequence, for a typical hospital procedure or inpatient day, what Medicare pays is only about 90% of the average cost, with commercial insurance making up the difference, paying 120 to 130,000 or more. As Medicare expands the impact on businesses, therefore, the ones that fund this added dollars will grow in magnitude with huge post-coronavirus implications. Hospitals and doctors already are buckling under the loss of revenue and income from patients fearful of coming in for medical treatment. If the dollars paid for those who do come from medical care becomes less, doctors and hospitals are likely to prioritize those who have purchased added insurance or have the financial means to pay more on their own above those insured through the government. This has been the experience of other countries with a public and private insurance option sitting next to each other. The combination of a prolonged recession with an ongoing coronavirus threat will be exacerbated by the Medicare expansion, assuming the government doesn't raise its current levels of reimbursement. But if it does that, the pressure on the expanding debt from COVID-19 will worsen. We are stuck between two very difficult choices. The third part of Biden's plan is expansion of the Affordable Care Act by offering greatest subsidies through the exchange. This will reduce the number of uninsured Americans, but it too will add pressure to the federal government to limit other investments in areas that would target those most negatively impacted by the current pandemic, such as unemployment. The final two parts of the plan are ones that are currently being debated and were debated even before the coronavirus came ashore. The affordability of drugs and surprise medical billings. It's hard for me to imagine, Jeremy, that healthcare dollars will be expanding in the post-coronavirus era, given the devastation the virus will have inflicted on the economy of our nation and across and around the globe. Something will need to give, something will need to change. We just can't be certain at this point what it will be. Robbie, to that end, can you update us on what is happening with the economy? The economy is responding based on the volume of congressional and Federal Reserve dollars that are flowing. As both rise, we are seeing positive signs with jobs increasing, although we're continuing to see a jobless rate of 10.2%, more than double the number before the pandemic, but on the good side, close to half of, the, of what COVID-19 did at its peak. Similarly, the stock market is bullish about these investments, but at the same time, we're seeing gold and silver that offer protection against inflation also rising. So far, the stimulus packages and the willingness of the Fed to intervene to protect businesses have propped up our nation's economy but clearly the day of reckoning is on the horizon. I think people have their 
toes in the water, but they're not ready yet to fully dive in. Robbie, I keep getting compliments from people about how our show ignores the politics uh, and the spin of the media and sticks to the news and the facts. And to be honest, I keep getting more and more disheartened every day about how politicized this pandemic has become. Uh, Do you have any thoughts or advice for people on how to get good facts and advice that aren't skewed by uh, the media or politicians for their own political gain? Well, I agree with you completely, Jeremy, that unfortunately at a time when we need bipartisanship and unity, we need to focus on what is happening and have a response that is based upon the biology not the politics, we're seeing the latter dominate the former. In terms of the political biases, listeners who are listening to a variety of shows need to anticipate that they will exist and look for skepticism when spokespeople from either party or elected officials take the mic They should listen to shows like ours, The Coronavirus, The Truth, and others like it that focus on the facts and not on the rhetoric from either side. As we've said often, this virus isn't political. Whether we open schools because of the negative educational consequences of keeping people home, or we make classes virtual due to the healthcare threats, no one can decide. Both are problematic with negative consequences, and the two are not comparable. You can't figure out the impact long-term over decades on children who miss school or at least miss the in-person nature of the school against a short-term risk to the health of teachers, or their family, or the children's families. These are just not the types of measures that we can calculate. And so it becomes a value judgment. Listeners can hear the opinions of doctors and educators, and then they need to weigh the risks themselves. But when they hear anyone provide an absolute answer, we must open them or we can't open them, there's likely to be bias. And those searching for truth should look for different sources of information and perspective. Robbie, I know you're a big baseball fan and I'm a big football fan. What's going on with sports these days? As we discussed in this program, Major League Baseball is struggling. The Miami Marlins were hit with more than a dozen players testing positive and their season is being delayed. Now they will be resuming play but close to half of the players in the team, those who will be on the field in the clubhouse, will be ones that the manager has not yet met. The Phillies and the Cardinals similarly are beginning to test positive and have had games postponed. In contrast, the NBA has isolated its players inside a dome without outside contact, and they have been successful at avoiding the coronavirus pandemic The challenge isn't figuring out how to minimize infection. We know how to do that. It's the impact it has on people and players. It's one thing to put people in a bubble 
for an NBA playoff run in which half of the teams will be eliminated after the first two weeks. It's another to try to do that for a 60-game baseball season, followed by playoffs. I think football will have the same challenges of baseball, and we're going to see players become infected. We're going to see challenges with having scheduled games. And as you well know, as a football fan, it's one thing to play a doubleheader in baseball. That's not a possibility in such a high-contact sport. I know you'll be writing an article in Forbes this week about a vaccine. Dr. Fauci talked about his cautious optimism we'd have one by the end of the year. I've heard other experts say that a vaccine is a long way off, if ever. Um, What's your take? I did post today on Forbes an article about the five reasons a coronavirus vaccine may fail. It came out of feedback to our Coronavirus The Truth show, where listeners were interested in understanding not just what could happen, but what could go wrong. To that end, I hope Dr. Fauci is right, but I believe it's essential to understand what can go wrong. You know, the WHO, the World Health Organization, last week predicted that the coronavirus will be with us in the future, regardless of whether a vaccine is created. That's not the idea that most people have. Now, so far, the various vaccines that are being developed appear relatively safe and potentially efficacious. That's far from a prediction that we will have one by early 2021. In the Forbes article, The Five Things That Could Go Wrong With The Coronavirus Vaccine, I point out that people may not take it. In a survey of readers of my monthly musing, two-thirds of the individuals who responded to the survey who were not in the healthcare field said they would not be comfortable simply taking the vaccine because the FDA approved it. They wanted to see additional information based upon how others respond. I also noted that immunity might not last, as happens after people are infected with the other coronaviruses, the ones that produce the common cold. Third, the vaccine may not work very well. The FDA has set the threshold for approval at 50% effectiveness. Think about it, combine a 50% effective vaccine let's say a 50% vaccination rate. And that means that three quarters of people will still be vulnerable with insufficient immunity to allow our nation to ease social distancing in the foreseeable future. Fourth, the vaccines that are currently in development may fail to cross that 50% threshold. Most of them are what's called RNA vaccines. In 20 years of trying to produce an RNA vaccine against a variety of viruses, no human vaccine has ever proven successful and dozens have failed. The reason for this is that unlike the typical vaccines, the ones against polio as an example, that either use 
dead virus or weakened ones, and generate immunity to multiple parts of the pathogen. An RNA vaccine targets a single or small number of proteins. Will that be enough for protection? It's just too early to know. And finally, there are multiple unexpected things that could occur. The virus could mutate, making a vaccine ineffective. There might be challenges in the manufacturing process, trying to make hundreds of millions of doses. And finally, there's the reality that only one vaccine in the history of vaccine development, the one against mumps, was developed in fewer than five years, and that one took four years, going from concept to production in one year would be unprecedented. Now, we should be rooting for the vaccine and the virologists developing it, but we should be prepared for the possibility that this will be a prolonged, multi-year endeavor, one in which somewhere between half a million and a million Americans will die during the delay. Robbie, I have heard horror stories about how the local school district has been getting ready for the the, the coming fall. It sounds like they had a plan, then the, the governor disagreed with it, and there's been a lot of back and forth, and they delayed school for two weeks, and there's just kind of no certainty about what's going on. And I know a lot of the parents are frustrated. Kids are you know, not sending their kids to kindergarten. They're holding them back a year. And it seems to be that's the case all across this country. Uh, what's going on with schools right now? Jeremy, as in so many areas, as you said, we just don't have a strategy or a clear plan. And that's what we need and what children deserve. Some states are putting on blinders, deciding to move forward regardless of what happens. Others are using the 80-20 rule, opening classes, but doing as much as possible to limit transmission. Most of them will use a combination of in-person and virtual teaching, making sure everyone is wearing a mask and keeping six feet apart when in the same area. This is the approach I will be following this September at the Stanford Graduate School of Business. My first and last class this semester will be in person in a room four times the size of our usual space. In between, classes will be shorter, more often, and given online. Some school systems are saying that they will open based on the percentage of the population testing positive. In California, the governor has said that more than 5% will restrict opening or lead to closing. New York City is using a number of 9%. And right now, according to Governor Cuomo, New York is at 1%. I worry what will happen when the weather cools in the fall and more people are inside. We well could see a spike in the number of coronavirus cases. And as you say, it's uncertain how parents will respond to the pressure on one hand to send their kids to school and return to work themselves, and on the other, maximally protect children from infection and harm. For those school systems taking this wait-and-see approach, I'd suggest they figure out what they will do 
when the community levels are low, but a child in their school tests positive for COVID-19? Will they notify the parents and quarantine the other students who have been in the class? Will they try to close the whole school to protect everyone who might have been exposed? What if it's not one student, but three kids or five kids? What about if the person infected is the teacher? You know, if I were advising them, I'd have them do contingency planning by putting the principal and board members on the line and taking them through and forcing them to respond to five or six different scenarios. You know, it's one thing to intellectualize on what you might do to pick a certain community rate of infection. And it's another to make the decision in the moment when parents are concerned because the child sitting next to their son or daughter came down with COVID-19 and their offspring was exposed and they have a grandparent living in the house. The time to feel the adrenaline surging is in preparation not for the first time in the heat of the battle. Again and again and again, what we see is people expect to have a logical and rational response, and then they face the reality of fear, anxiety, and concern. Now, Robbie, a lot of the college students are moving back to town here. Uh, You know, we're a big college town. do colleges realistically think that students will follow the guidelines that many of them are setting? I mean, they're still going to be living in dorms or apartments, going out to bars and house parties, etc. cetera. Uh, I think it's going to be an insanely small percentage of the college students that are actually following the rules. I mean, people that age think they're immortal. How can colleges charge full price for this kind of an experience, especially when some of the schools are doing everything remote Uh, What are your thoughts on not only student behavior, uh, but college pricing with things being so disrupted? Jeremy, you're really asking two questions. In terms of the economics, colleges are struggling with students deciding not to come back. And the university costs aren't declining. In fact, often they're rising as they must address the difficulties coming from COVID-19. With lower tuition, they would be propelled even faster to financial insolvency. And yet, as you point out, it's not the same thing educationally or from the perspective of personal growth when you're doing it online, getting your education in a virtual fashion. Like so many other areas, education will be altered dramatically in the future. And once again, as in medicine, That process began before the virus came ashore, but COVID-19 has moved virtual education forward at an astounding pace. Exactly what it will look like, we don't know. But will it be different? Absolutely. When it comes to adhering to the recommendations on social distancing, like you, I doubt they will be followed rigorously. That's the reality. So schools, rather than investing all their energy in trying to convince students to do it, need to get a step or two ahead of the process. First, they need to make 
testing easy to obtain and the ways of self-quarantine simple. In places where the faculty can control the rules, such as the classroom, they need to be sure that everyone wears masks and keeps six feet apart. They need to do that to protect both the students and the teachers. And of course, all students should be tested before they go home to protect their parents and grandparents. Their parents and grandparents will be looking forward to them, wanting to hug them. And we need to be sure that the student who likely was exposed and may be infected and capable of transmitting it knows whether he or she has the virus to protect those that they love. Jeremy, on our Fixing Healthcare podcast, you often provide the perspective of the patient. If all restrictions were lifted and you could return to all of the activities of the past, knowing, however, that the virus was still circulating, what are a couple you would do? And what are a few you would continue to avoid, even though legally you could? Robbie, as many of our listeners have heard before, you know, I live in Iowa. I grew up rural. And a lot of the things that I enjoy doing are outdoor activities and are kind of socially distanced anyway. Like I, I have no issues hiking or going for a walk with my dogs, going shooting with my friends, you know, canoeing, sitting under a tree and reading, things like that, camping. Um, but I'm not to the point where I would be super comfortable, you know, eating at a busy indoor restaurant or, you know, tailgating followed by a packed football game. That being said, most of what I like to do for fun is kind of outdoor and by nature of what it is socially distanced anyway. Jeremy, this week we had Ed Wajiki, the CEO of 23andMe, on our Fixing Healthcare podcast. What are a couple of things, as a patient, you learned about the field of genomics and gene testing from her? either relative to the coronavirus itself or to the chronic diseases that seem to make patients sicker from COVID-19. I actually thought it was especially fascinating that some people uh, may be genetically like, predisposed to having coronavirus symptoms hit harder than other people. Uh, you know, like how if some people are at increased risk for things like cancer or, di or certain cancers or diabetes. And I wonder if we could figure out a way to know who is and who isn't at increased risk for the more severe symptoms and use that as a way to kind of strategically combat the virus while allowing others who are significantly less at risk to return to more of a normalcy. The airline and travel industry continue to be hit hard. Um, what's the latest thinking on their future? I predict this will be one of the areas most impacted by the coronavirus and the experience we have been through. It's clear that business travel that had been a major part of the industry's foundation will be greatly diminished. Fewer flights and possibly fewer hotels are likely. As such, we're going to see a reversal of the trend 
whereby people got out of their car to take short distance flights. Going forward, they're likely to drive longer distances rather than taking the chance to find themselves sitting next to someone on the plane who's infected. The International Air Transport Association just pushed its date to resume pre-corona 19 levels of air travel to 2024, a year later than it had been predicted previously. And I suspect that that's very optimistic, that we're not likely to have a return to the amount of flying from the past by four years from today. In the same way that many businesses are investing in technology, I believe that airports and airlines will do the same. As an example, rather than people waiting in line to go through screening or to, or to go through check-in, that airlines and airports will put in place facial recognition software that can replace both the lines and the people doing these jobs. It is hard during a time of massive social change to envision the next reality. Listeners who want to know when will we return to normal will be disappointed by the answer because the answer is never. The right questions are what will the new normal look like and how can I best prepare for it? Through coronavirus, the truth, we provide the information listeners need not to understand the past, but to prepare for the future. As a reminder to listeners, this episode is available on our website, fixinghealthcarepodcast.com, and on all podcasting platforms, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. If you like the show, please rate it five stars and share it with your friends and family. To submit a question or comment to the host, please visit our contact page on our website or send us a message on Twitter, LinkedIn, or Facebook. Thank you very much for listening and have a great day.